Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, hello, everyone. It is the 15th of November, 2021. I am Luke Thomas. This is Morning Combat Extra Credit. This is where I pick out a few fights that we didn't get a chance to get into on regular MK, which, by the way, if you're listening now, regular MK with me and Brian Campbell is already up on YouTube, already up on the podcast, wherever you get your podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want. So it's already up. But here we are to talk about five extra fights today. We're going to get into those in just a second. But here, if you're uh, watching on YouTube, you can see the social graphic below. Give us a follow anywhere on Twitter or on Instagram. Morning Combat's name is the same everywhere. And, of course, if you're watching this, thumbs up, hit subscribe. Do all that good stuff. Okay, five fights, as always, as promised. Let's take a look at them. We're going to go four fights from the UFC card, one from Bellator. Here's the UFC card we're going to go into. Song Yudong versus Julio Arce. Uh, Joel Alvarez taking on Tiago Moises. Sean Woodson fighting Colin Anglin. And then Da Un Jun taking on, and forgive me for the pronunciation here, Kennedy Nzechuk. I'm sure I am fucking that up as bad as one possibly can. Um, and then we'll get to the Bellator fight in just a minute. It'll be the Linton Vassell versus Tyrell Fortune fight. So those are the fights we're going to get to here today. Without further ado, let's start, if we can, on Monica, or excuse me, on uh, Extra Credit Episode 8 with the fight I mentioned first here in that lineup, Song Yudong taking on Julio Arce. Song Yudong wins at 135 of the second round via head kick and then a punch. So he, he lands a head kick. And then fires off a right hand, or was a right head kick, falls off a right hand behind it. And at that point, Arce is in deep trouble. He falls him off and then and then uh, polishes him off. I mean, a few things stand out about Song Yudong in this one. First of all, this was a very patient performance. The first round, I, I think he won it, but it wasn't like uh, some drubbing beatdown or something. He, he was, uh, it looked to me like he was taking his time and fact-finding, seeing what Arce was giving him. But what the thing was kind of interesting was, he was doing a really good job of kind of just taking away whatever Julio Arce was trying to do, particularly the leg kicks. You'll notice he was bouncing out of the way a lot. And then as the fight wore on, he stopped um, doing that bouncing out as much because what was happening was he would bounce out to get out of the way. and it would That would work, right? Like moving your feet is not in any way necessarily wrong. It just depends on what the goal is and what you're trying to do and whether or not that particular movement is that is is helpful for that particular uh, strategy and, and what you're looking for. So it, it's good in the sense that it got him out of the way of what was coming, but then he would kind of have to renegotiate the distance again. And so the first round was kind of about, what's this guy throwing to me? How do I get out of the way? Let me get out of the way. Let me read this and see you know, what works and what, and, and, and what doesn't. And then what you saw him do was really kind of put a little bit more pressure on him the second round. A lot of taking away of the jab of Arce. That was a big part of this, too, whether he was slipping it and just sort of not letting it land, but also uh, parrying it, covering it, you know, getting out of the way of it, just not letting it ever really begin to be a commanding presence in the fight whatsoever. A couple of them snuck through. Obviously, Julio Arce is a talented fighter, but 
Um, the thing that stands out in addition to me beyond just the patience is what we kind of already knew about Song Yudong, which is that obviously he is a very gifted athlete and he hits like a ton of bricks. He's got fast hand speed, explosive athleticism. I mean, think about something here. Like I mentioned, for example, Song Yudong was trying to take away the jab of Arce. Understand that if you look at that final sequence, what happened there? It looks like Arce and Song Yudong are throwing their strikes at the exact same time. A jab for Arce and a head kick for Yudong. I can't quite exactly tell if it's one of two scenarios. Is it that he read it and immediately fired up the leg kick or that they had separated? Because what happened was there was a bit of a blitz from, from Yudong and then he pushes him back. And then you watch Arce begin to reclose that distance. Did he push and then expect that return where he got just enough into close space where he could fire the leg kick right up there without, without hardly any telegraph and then land it. Hard to tell exactly because the timing is weird. But in any case, it was a challenge to the jab. It, it certainly was not – He was not the head was not there to be hit. Actually, actually, I don't think it was quite off. I think he was raised because he was on his tippy-toe, so it ended up being like right around here. And then the head kick landed. The only point I, 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 I am trying to make in all of that is the setup was nice. Uh, although it's you know somewhat uh, serendipitous, but the point is like, dude, his he, like maybe the jab from Arce got there first, but the jab from Arce and then the head kick from like Yudong were almost as equally quick. I mean, that dude can lightning get his feet to someone's face. It is very very impressive. And then there was a couple times he would you see him um, shift as he was pressing stance switching is the term I'm trying to use here, but it's called shifting as he would press Arce backwards, and then as he would press him backwards, you'd see these heavy, heavy hooks. That landed a couple of times as he switched through the motions, but there was a lot of times where it didn't. But the big story there was just him taking his time to find out the distance once he got it. I mean, here's the reality. Like, Yudong landed strikes in the first round, but it wasn't like the first thing that landed clean, like super clean. And even then, it wasn't all that clean because the hand was kind of up. But the first thing that Rick, you know, really struck him with authority was that head kick, and then the fight was basically over. Like that, that dude must have sick power. Um, and you add that this was a very difficult opponent. I thought he had, I think, very highly of Julio Arce, and that he just took his time in the first round. And then, like, here's what you want from someone this athletic. This is what you want. You want them to do what he's doing, which is that you can't forget about like, dude, having all of that power and having all of that athleticism. It's just such an obvious benefit. But let's find a scientific way to use it. Let's find a clever way to use it. Let's find a way where when you use it properly, you don't have to do much of it. You go, and let me pull up his striking numbers if I can from that first round. Um, yeah, I mean, he only landed 17 of 52, but he held Arce to just five. Arce very, very, just couldn't get much going, very, very defensively minded, kind of covering up, and he was doing a lot, which is interesting because, like, you had two opponents who were kind of trying to read the other one, and even, I would say, a semi-reserved Yudong still landed a lot. And his other fights, let's see, what did he land in the Kyler Phillips fight in the first round? He landed 21. Right, which is a little bit more. What about Marlon Vera? He landed 17 in that one, although he got outstruck in that round, and it wasn't until the second and third round we had 44 and 40. Jesus Christ. Hold on, let's go back to the Casey Kenny win. 
How many did he have there? He had 31 in the first round. Jesus Christ. And then he had 34 and 51 in the second and third subsequently against Kyler. How much did he have here all the way around? 20, 21, and 26, which is pretty good in the third round when he really put a bit of a, uh, a pace on him there. Let's look at the – because the Cody Stamen fight was a lot of wrestling. What about Alejandro Perez? Oh, I mean, that was, you know, eight, eight punches, but that fight didn't last very long. Yeah, so I would say this is in line with what you see from him, but maybe a little bit on the reserved side. There's definitely been some rounds where he had much more activity, but it's a lot of a lot of blitzing, a lot of just heavy hooking, a lot of less patient, less scientific approaches to the game. This, to me, seemed both equally thoughtful and powerful. If he can keep building on that, um, he's going to have a lot of success. Uh, okay, so that takes us now down to the fight that I thought was the most interesting fight, certainly in, I won't say of the weekend because there was the main event, but on that preliminary card, Joel Alvarez defeating Tiago Moises via TKO elbows at 301 of the first round. Now, big caveat, and you could see it play out in person. I don't know how long Joel Alvarez is built for this weight class. Um, he missed weight. Uh, 157 and a half is what he made. So he missed it by a pound and a half, even with the one pound allowance. He is nowhere close to championship weight. He looks to be huge for lightweight. You know, Moises and Makachev were more or less the same size. You know, it wasn't a huge difference. There was a huge difference here. So I don't know how he would do at welterweight. We, I, I'm not saying he would do poorly, I, but I, I do wonder when a guy is looking for this much of an advantage, what that might say. Still, you got to make weight. We'll see what weight class he belongs in. Okay. But for the time being, if we just talk about this fight, this was brilliant, quite frankly. I mean, he had Moises on the end of his punches and strikes the entire time. Again, let's look at some of these numbers here as I pull them up. But the big read that I made was folks were asking about the elbow versus the Dot Jung elbow, which I guess I'm going to skip to here in just a second to make the conversation a little uh, more of a flowing thing. In the case of Alvarez, the answer is that they basically did more or less the same thing. Now, they had different kinds of elbows that they threw, um, and the setups weren't exactly the same, nor were the situations identical. But the basic idea in both the Da Un Jung fight and in the Joel Alvarez fight is that they got their opponents to cover themselves up so that they couldn't see. And they did that with a lot of different things that they were trying to do. But partly, it's getting a reaction from the opponent. So when you see an opponent constantly cover this way, you know, this is again, this is not necessarily wrong. In fact, that could save you the and win you the whole fight, depending on when you employ this. But if you go to this a lot versus slipping versus circling out versus whatever any other kind of the uh, operational defense you can employ, a lot of this means a lot of times you can't use your hands because they're literally covering your face. So if someone just jabs and jabs and jabs and then gets you to hold it then the hands come up and it opens up the body or any kind of hooking punch. Although sometimes people can, you know, work with that a little bit. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's very powerful in that if it deflects a punch or a kick, you know, the, the hands are kind of covering this and you're still there. You don't have to move your feet. Um, but the problem is you can just build around a lot of different scenarios. So what you saw Joel Alvarez do was a lot of straight punches, straight punches, then he'd throw a hooking punch. But the big key was he did that skip knee to help him close the distance, almost like tie boxing style. And from there, he could grab the hands and then elbow over it or elbow around him or whatever he wanted to do. So he's changing up the range at which he's playing with some of these strikes. So you might think that there's a straight punch coming. Or excuse me. You might think that 
Um, he's not going to throw something like that because he's super up on close with you and you only felt the hooking punches when he was really away. So he's playing with the the the, the ranges. And then also what the shot selection is. If they think that you're in close, oh, he's not going to throw elbows or I'm not too worried about it. I'm not, I'm not expecting them to land here per se. Um, whatever, whatever miscalculation you're making about um, the shot selection in that particular case, and for those reasons, then it works out perfectly, right? So you're playing with shot selection, you're playing with range, you're playing with it at the same time. Uh, and then you having an opponent who has a bit of a one-dimensional defense. Like your defense, like your offense, needs to have dimensions to it. You know, you can't do all things, right? Adesanya doesn't defend the same way as Wonderboy Thompson, and both of their styles are not perfect, and both of their styles have plenty of weaknesses, but they also have a lot of different dimensions. They can slip punches, and they can step around and reset angles, and they can do all – they can turn defense into offense. There's lots they can do with how they have employed defensive responsibility into their game. And a lot of the guys you see now in MMA who just hold their hands over their head, again, it's not wrong. It's not me to be like, Luke knows better. I'm not saying I know better. It's not about that. But it is true. I have seen it way too many times. If you are one note with that offense where you're consistently blinding yourself, covering up like that, uh, guys who can get into that flow state, right? The guys who can be high volume and then bop, 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 and then they're chopping to the body and bop, 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 and then they're coming with an uppercut and then they back off. And, you know, the guys who can let the volume go and they just kind of feel out the situation and have this inherent ability to let the right shots flow at the right time without a whole lot of, um, you know, direct thinking about it, they're going to tear like people like that up, man. They're going to tear them up. And especially when a guy like Tago Moises, who is tall, so his knees can come up high, so you're kind of bending down. So then when he throws, he can slash. By the way, I can't really throw elbows uh, hardly at all anymore because I've had shoulder surgery and they're all bad. People are like, you have to have kind of like real good shoulder dexterity to throw. Uh, which I don't, um, but you know, a guy like a tall, nimble, rangy guy like Joel Alvarez, that's the perfect kind of striking style for him. And against Moises, he just had all the wrong defense um, for that particular kind of challenge. And and uh, you saw Alvarez just absolutely shine. So the linear attacks up the middle, you know, be- getting getting uh, Moises to bend over and then bringing all different kind of stuff behind it, linear attacks with the jabs, bringing all kinds of stuff behind it, those skip knees to close in range, and then he could attack to the body, push off, he could do an elbow off the clinch break. There's just so much he could do from there because he was playing with all... How can you throw all those weapons? Only if you can play with all those ranges, right? Like, what good is a skip knee all the way away? What good is a head kick if you're right in front? It's everything he could do from all the different spaces, and he could go to it instantly without having to think too much. Um, I'm going to skip the Sean Woodson fight for just a second just to talk about the elbows and keep it consistent, but this might have been my favorite fight on rewatch, I'll say. Dalton Jung taking on, again, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, so I'm just going to say Kennedy. Good fighter on light heavyweight division. Um, Nzech UQ uh, out of... Um, uh, Safe Souls Gym, four to seven May. Not a great performance by him. I, I don't think he would probably disagree with that too much. Uh, couldn't blame the referee for this one. Daun Jung had a really interesting moment there, and I, I, I thought it was interesting because you, you did hear Michael Bisping note that there was almost no footwork in the fight, which is quite correct. There was almost none. Didn't hear a lot of commentary though about what he was doing with his hands. 
So you had open stance on this one. So you had one southpaw, uh, I believe that was Kennedy was standing southpaw, and you had Da Jung standing in orthodox. And what was so interesting was Da Jung kept using his left hand to control the lead hand. So two lead hands. The lead hand of Jung, lead hand of Kennedy. And he, what was he doing with that? Everything. So one, he's managing the distance. Like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Two, you can actually pin it to someone's body if you wanted to throw something else behind it. And you could pin it here. If it's up high, you can pin it to their head. You can actually take their hand. You could pin it to them. And then you could throw around it. We've talked about this with Volkanovsky. You can do that. And also when you hold it, not only do I know where I am, I know where you are. I know where um, I can I can pin it to you. I can pull you in certain directions. I can pull your hand down so I can create openings with the hand. And if this hand is occupied, yes, my hand is occupied. But if I can bait you to throw, which is what Daun Jung was doing a little bit, he was sort of acting a bit of a – he was going at lead at times, but a lot of times he was counteracting. He just knows what's coming. And plus, if you got a guy who you know is not a kicker and not much of a takedown threat, you can kind of just play with that space. He used that strategy – perfectly glove control where he's controlling the glove he's controlling the lead wrist sometimes the elbow right a little bit depending on where he was grabbing and it, you have to think of it this way like in grappling what's what does almost everything start with starts with your grips in a gi sleeve and a collar right in uh no gi it could be a or wrestling it could be a collar tie but everything starts with a grip you got to this is not exactly correct. I'm, I'm just trying to explain conceptually what's happening here. But imagine what would happen if Jung grabbed the wrist, right, of Kennedy and then didn't let go. Now, there are times when Kennedy fought out of it. I want to make a point here, though. He would, like, you know, rip his hand away. But then he would kind of go back to what he's doing. And so Jung would just go back to, you know, touching, touching, touching. But imagine he had kept it there. Kennedy would probably just pull it away, right? You wouldn't let someone do it. You would never let them establish a grip on you. Right, if you have, you know, you're, you know, you're not going to let another prize fighter just grab your wrist and then it's just going to go unattended in a fight. You're going to lose. Everyone knows that. You would never let him. You would peel the grip off and go back to what you're doing. I have to tell you though, if you're up against a fighter who, when you peel your hand off and you go back to what you're doing, and the offense is more or less fifty-fifty, and they keep touching, you're playing their game. You're not playing your game. You got to remember, dude. Whenever you do anything whether you want to pass guard or go for a submission or throw a particular strike to the extent possible and many times it will not be possible to the extent possible you want to do it on your terms not theirs or not even equal terms you don't want it to be 50 50 50 50 is a fucking coin flip fuck that you want to be able to put it on your terms Israel Adesanya puts it on his terms when Demi and Maya grapples he grapples you on his terms not yours so the whole point of touching like that is it's not the functional equivalent of a grip. That That's not what I mean. But it has the same kind of effect where you're letting him, it's a, it's a grip almost intermittent. I can touch it for a second. I can touch it for a second. I can touch it for a second. And it has, in many ways, not the functional equivalence, but there are similar rewards that can be reaped. I can hold it and pin it to you for just the second that I need it. I can gauge the distance. I can do all these things that a normal grip would also allow me to do if left unattended, it's almost like he's establishing a grip without having to keep it on locked the entire time. And so when you think of it that way, where, I, yeah, I would never let you do that. And then I would never go back to you just letting you re-grip. You have to keep stripping the grip. But the, you, you just can't keep going back to that scenario because now you're just constantly fighting out of a deficit. You let someone keep doing this long enough, you're going to be fighting out of a deficit. So 
I was surprised that he let it go that long and that, you know, it wasn't just three minutes into a fight, um, but still too too long to let a guy just unattended grabbing your wrist like that. And so uh, the the elbow was interesting. The, you had from Alvarez, you had a bit of a slashing elbow coming. Again, I can't quite rotate my wrist, you know, well enough to get the proper elbow and shoulder angle. I don't have any of the, the nimble dexterity, but um, you had a slashing kind of side elbow around this from uh, Joel Alvarez. By the way, I, Spanish speakers might want to help me with this one. I asked my wife this too. I'm like, okay, so the guy's from Spain and his name is Joel and it's spelled with a J. So why isn't it Joel? Because uh, Yoel Romero would be pronounced by my wife and some other people in Latin America by with a J. The Y would be a J sound. So it would be Joel to them, right? Um, why is it Joel and not Hoel? I don't know the answer. She didn't know the answer either, actually. It was kind of funny. All right, but speaking about the elbow, so his, Da Jung's, was different. Rather than it being a sort of a slide slashing elbow. Now, the second elbow that Jung threw was a sla- side kind of slashing elbow, or at least a, like a, almost like a whipping, cracking elbow this way, right, kind of a thing. Uh, but the first one was it actually cocked back like a punch, and Kennedy, I don't think, realized what it was. Now, his hand was up, but it must have come around just around the front. If you go back, and I did it just to be sure, if you watch in slow motion, the hand and the arm chambers like he's getting ready to throw a punch. What I think he was doing was he was constantly not just controlling where um, Kennedy was and controlling his lead hand. And then again, you know, learning to live with what's coming on that end. Because by the way, he lets go of that at times about halfway through the fight. I should say halfway through the round at the 230 mark. He gets a little more free-flowing, but then kind of comes back to it whenever he needs to. He kind of just uses it to establish distance. I'm like, okay, where do I need to be to be out of the way and whatnot? But the point I'm trying to make is the elbow was chambered this way and then kind of came forward like this. And I guess it's almost like the tip or inside there's a bone here. Um, that can come around the side, and then it hit him in the head. And then you saw uh, Kennedy take a step back, but then kind of come back. It seemed like he was okay, but here's how you knew he wasn't. Then he gets his hands right back up. The elbow hits it again, and then he's visibly wobbled from a elbow strike in the case of the second elbow strike that was completely blocked. I mean, if you're blocking an elbow 100% and it still rocks you, it probably means that a both elbows were hard, but that the first one really kind of got a, it whipped around the glove. And so what I think he was doing there was when he was controlling and then pot shotting with his. Remember he's controlling with his hand, like Da Unjong, right grabbing, grabbing, going around, coming around with this, get grabbing. He was trying to see where the guy's hands go when he tests for whatever he was looking for, and he probably got the guy's hands to go from here out, or let's say I'm I'm, I'm left-handed, so somewhere around like this. What I think he was looking for was for this hand to come forward a little bit so there could open this lane. That's what I think he was looking for. If you're listening on the audio podcast, what I'm trying to say is I think he was looking to more closely center Kennedy's hands from rather than being outside of his face, a little bit closer to the inside of his face so that he could whip a, 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 a chamber a punch that Kennedy probably thought was coming straight at him, right? He probably thought it was a jab. That's why the punch was chambered the way that it was. So Kennedy thinks it's coming right for him. He puts his hands right in front of his face, more or less, and then it actually slides by on the outside um, as the trajectory of the strike uh, changes, as it changes shape from a chambered punch to a kind of like a like a you know like a almost like almost like a slapping elbow. It's not quite the right word, but an interesting an interesting way uh, certainly to go about things.
great win by him. I was extremely impressive. So two nice wins there. But yeah, man, the big lesson for me, I was watching I'm like, dude, you're just gonna let this guy keep touching you like this. You gotta, you gotta change it up. You gotta switch stances. You gotta, you know, fake a level change. You gotta get him off of constantly touching the outside of your arm, man. That when they do that, every one of those is like, you know, uh, sonar. And they're going to find out kind of exactly where you are. They're going to control your lead hand the whole time. It's just not a great place to be. You got to move. You got to get all, or, you know, yeah, you like start using, uh, you know, fainting and then angle change and then circular, uh, you know, uh, lateral motion as you go around and you're circling and you're getting out of the way. But just standing in front and letting a guy grab you like that, it's going to, it's, it's going to be bad for you. Um, Sean Woodson taking on Colin Anglin. He wins TKO, body to the punches at 430 of round one. This is an extremely impressive performance from Sean Woodson, who I know everyone said, you know, I don't want to bring it up because there's no point to, but it is relevant here. He does have a strange body type. He's got a giant melon. Uh, I'm in the giant melon club myself. I'm a man who understands these challenges. I, I, like Sean Woodson, cannot buy a snapback hat and wear it because my head is so huge. Nevertheless, um, he's got long limbs. That's really the reason why I bring it up in a very short torso. He's got long limbs. He used them quite effectively here. But the story of the fight is not just how good he was at maintaining range, although that was good. Colin England had a very hard time closing that distance at all. He also had a really hard time reading what was coming. And that, to me, is the story of this fight. Not only did Sean Woodson do a great job at keeping England at the end range, his range, which was very far for Colin. I mean, you could tell he had a hard time figuring out just how far back he needed to be, and then even then... You know, a safe distance was really far away. Like the guy, Woodson, his his limbs, they just keep traveling. It's like shocking how far they go for that featherweight weight class. But the other part was, and this was the most impressive part to me, dude, his shot selection was excellent. What do I mean by shot selection? You have to throw the right strike for the right time, at, you know, for the right need. And that there can be a lot of different ones you throw. And listen, maybe you're supposed to throw a shot to the body because your coach called for it. You threw a, a a left hook instead and knocked him out. Listen, if the punch lands and it wins, that's what matters most. But if you're trying to apply these things in a little bit more of a thoughtful way, certain strikes are going to work better at certain moments against certain kinds of opponents and challenges. And he just seemed to be able to find not just a nice mix of things, of of straight linear punches with hooking punches and that kind of a thing. Also using uh, his teep really, really well as a way to score, um, cause posture change and whatnot. But he was also just flowing out there. So, at, you know, when he was at, lo- at end range, he was using um, end range kind of strikes. And then as it got closer, he was just really good about another opponent occupying his hands, bringing him up. And then what did you, what did you see him roast him with? The body shots. I mean, I'm telling you, I want to go back to this. Like, again, this is not me saying this is bad defense. That's not the argument that I'm making. The argument that I am making is that an over-reliance on hands-up defense in modern MMA against anyone who's got decent striking, you're going to get fucking eaten alive doing that. You're going to get eaten alive. You have to switch something up. You can do it somewhat. Again, some of it might not just be like, okay, some of it might be perfect in the right moment, good. Dude, again, in boxing, you saw Canelo Alvarez, not quite hands up this high, but kind of leaning and shelling and covering. Again, in the right moment for the right context and the right amounts, it's exactly what you need. It's not a question of right or wrong. It's a question on how much you rely on certain forms of defense to protect you against high-level opponents. Dude, a high-level guy 
like Sean Woodson, you come up to him with this over and over again, he's going to eat you alive. Those body shots were fantastic. And my man was in a flow state the whole time. He looked like Neo in the fucking Matrix. Just, he, he didn't even have to think about what he was throwing. He's thrown those strikes in practice and in sparring so many times. So many times, excuse me. They just effortlessly began to just produce themselves. Bop, 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 bop. Really, really, really impressive shot selection from Sean Woodson. I really liked what he was choosing to go with, or at least, you know, what he chose to go with in practice and then turn into muscle memory. How about that? But even then, he could recognize as the ranges changed and what his opponent was showing him changed, so did the particular kinds of strikes that he needed to. And again, he didn't really go to the body shots, as you notice. There was some body work, certainly with the legs at long range, but the best body work was almost when he was right on top of Anglin to a, uh, to a degree. When he didn't have to like reach forward or at all, he could just drive down with almost maximum authority to a wide open opponent because his hands are up, you know, covering up whatever else he was doing, and he tore him up for it. Um, that's great work from Sean Woodson, who I know had a setback. Who did he have a setback against? Who was it against? Yeah, Arosa. But that was back in 2020. Since then, he beat Yusuf Zalal, which is a tough fight because Yusuf Zalal is very good. And then Colin Anglin, he wins here. Tremendous performance. Let me look at some of his numbers if I can here very quickly, and then we'll call it a day with one more fight. In this one, Sean Woodson, let's see. He, there we go, against Colin Anglin. Man, they gave him, in three minutes, he landed 50 strikes and threw 107. Wow impressive and listen to these numbers 40 percent uh this is what he targeted so this is what he targeted he targeted 46 percent to the head 34 percent to the body 20 percent to the legs that's a nice very good distribution of um of targeting most of them a distance of course but that's you know you see what i mean just mixing it all up all the different ways he can do it really nice stuff man he landed uh, he landed more significant strikes than Anglin even attempted. <laughs> Anglin attempted 40 total strikes. Woodson landed 50 significant strikes. Yikes. Uh, and then last but certainly not least, let's go to the final fight here that we have for me. Co-main event for Bellator. Not the most interesting fight, but it is worth paying attention to because here's a guy who switched weight classes. Uh, then uh, now I'm doing the BC bit. Linton Vassell ran to Ryan Bader. He got stopped. And then Phil Davis, he got stopped. This was in 2017 and 2018 at light heavyweight. He's a huge light heavyweight. So then he moves up to heavyweight in 2019, but his first fight was against Valentin Moldovsky, who is the interim champ as it stands. Right? So that, uh, right. I believe Valentin Moldovsky is the interim champ, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he won the interim Bellator heavyweight champion. Okay, so you can't beat that guy. So he fights Sergei Heratonov and wins. He fights Honey Marks and wins. But that's also not the same as beating like, you know, Sergei Heratonov is a legend, but he's old. And Honey Marks is, you know, he's had some highs, but he's been on, he's been, you know, out, outside of, he's been in major promotions, but he's been losing for a while. I mean, let me look at his record. Yeah, I mean, he's won, he hasn't won two in a row since 2017. So he's been inconsistent, and um, he hasn't beaten anyone with a Wikipedia entry since 2017. So, yeah, so, you know, we're not talking about the very best that the division has to offer here, even if I take him, you know, seriously as a threat. 
So then you have this fight, and I thought, okay, Fortune is a natural heavyweight, not as big, but much better wrestler, fast. You know, Linton Vassell is athletic, but um, you know, heavyweight is clearly not his natural weight class, so he's a little bit slower. And I thought Tyrell Fortune is going to have the speed edge. His striking's come a long way, and his wrestling's come a long way. And that just didn't really play out the way I thought it would. One, I th- Linton Vassell had much more strength than I thought he was going to. And I knew he like he's bricked up. It's not like that's surprising. But at heavyweight, I didn't know how that was going to go. And it didn't go well for Tyrell Fortune is the first thing I would say. But the real key to this fight was Fortune at times was able to do well as it related to pure wrestling exchanges or as much as you can have pure wrestling exchanges in MMA. But when it came time to Matt wrestle or even Matt grapple, he completely lost his way. He would try to stuff a takedown and then not depart from the position, like not try and like really move away from it. And then Vassal would just use that to score some reversal or get on top or, you know, move to side control and, and turn him over. Or even then get a half, like a hook in and then opposite side wrist control. And then, you know, left hands are just going unobstructed as they're against the fence, like some kind of modern control position. And that's basically how a couple of the rounds went where they didn't, they weren't obvious wins. These, 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 these wrestling exchanges, they weren't necessary. Sometimes they were, sometimes you could get them down, but there, there was a couple of times where fortune was not at fighting out of a deficit. Then he would put one hand down and then here goes Linton Vassell to his back, and now the whole round is basically, or at least the next few minutes are going to be spent taking an L. It was weird. It was weird because some of my initial impressions I thought were right about how the speed and athleticism would would pair up, but I guess I was surprised at some of the the, the defensive grappling of Tyrell Fortune. Um, he's very talented, very athletic. He's got great trainers in the Lally brothers, but uh, that was a big that was a big gap in skill is that one particular area. And it, to me, if that wasn't for that, maybe Vassell could have won if he had gotten more, obviously if he couldn't have any of the success on the ground in the way that he did, he would have gone to another path to get it. He could not have won this fight striking. I will maintain that. Um, and may, again, maybe the British uh, gentleman could have got it and went to Vassell with, with wrestling, but I don't know. That was, that was, I was very surprised by that. I was very surprised by that. And that's it. Uh, I know some folks want to talk very quickly about the Alicia Bumgardner and Terry Harper fight uh, for honorable mention. Uh, maybe you could mention Chaos Williams versus uh, Miguel Baeza, but we kind of went over both of those on Have You Seen This Shit for Morning Combat, so I won't repeat it here. But uh, this is what I... Let me just say one last thing about this. This is what I mean when I, when I watch MMA. Here is a card with not a whole lot of names in the UFC case. World War II. Not a whole lot of big names on there. And I don't know that this video is going to do all that well because there was no real big names on it. And yet, if what you're actually paying attention to and what you are invested in is the fight itself, just between Joel Alvarez and Da-Woon Jung, you had these elbow attacks that were absolutely spectacular. You throw in what Sean Woodson was up to and then the reads, these quick, amazing, you know, uh, reflexive decision-making from a guy like Song Yudong. And then... You go down the list, but there's other fights we could have gone to we didn't even get to. It's like, dude, every week, if you're watching high-level fighting, and that's a big if, you're going to get high-level action on some level. Even the regional scene will produce these crazy knockouts because there's often a talent disparity 
that produces them that is a little more extreme than what you get at the highest level. But this is what I mean. you got to fall in love, not with the storylines or your favorite camps or what your favorite witty fighter says. What you have to fall in love with is the act of fighting itself, the science behind it. Yes, the beauty too. You can the art and you can enjoy that as well. That's all part of it. But once you be, once the fighting is what matters to you and not the other things, and you realize how much better fighting is getting over time, you know, you can complain about this card. And I'm not telling you it's the best card I've ever seen. It wasn't, although it was pretty good. But you don't need big names to have really important, interesting, fun, thoughtful mixed martial arts you really don't you can get it from just about um as long as it's high level you can get it from just about any kind of any kind of um card these days really is true absolutely and i mean that with 100 sincerity okay that's it what did i miss what, what were some of your favorite fights leave a comment below as always would love to hear from you about what you saw and we'll be back next week all right thumbs up on the video hit subscribe if you're listening on a podcast give this uh, uh show a thumbs up we appreciate it Give Morning Combat a nice review. I will talk to you guys next Monday. And until then, enjoy the fights.